All right, we're going to be in John chapter 21 today. So here's, uh, especially if you're new with us, a little bit of an update. We've been going through the book of John. That's typically how we do things as a church, is we'll go uh, through large books at a time. Uh, I mentioned last week, if you were here, we're wrapping up the book of John next week. We have one more uh, week to sort of like bring John to a close. Uh, Then we're going to spend a few weeks in spiritual disciplines. Uh, Like, what does it look like for you to build a life and practice based on the belief that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? So we'll talk about that. Then we're going to step into a doctrine series. What are the core things that we believe as a church? Just helping us to establish a foundation of what we believe. And then we'll be in Romans starting in the fall. Uh, Romans is a great book, a powerful book. Uh, It's probably the most significant theological book or what we believe about God, man, salvation, uh, the spirit, uh, our, our, our own state before God, all of that is spoken to and about in the book of Romans. And it's a, a wonderful experience going through it and trying to understand it better. And that's a, a little bit about how we teach and why we teach. I love the scriptures. I believe that they are the authority. I don't stand up here because I have great opinions or I have good ideas about how to present this stuff to you. Honestly, uh, you get to dismiss the stuff that I say and you get to hold on to the word of God as what is true and authoritative and powerful because that's where life comes from. Now, I do believe that the Lord uses me and other teachers to help put things together. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that. Maybe you've read a scripture before and it sort of made sense and then you heard somebody teach about it and you're like, what? That is so cool. It just sort of comes to life, and that's part of the joy of the Lord actually using people in our lives to help things make sense and take shape. And that's actually a little bit about what this passage is about in John chapter 21. We're going to finish John 21. It's, a, uh, it's an interesting chapter in that some people look at it, and they're like, it sort of feels like an epilogue. Like John wrapped up the book in chapter 20, And then somebody was like, oh, hey, you should write about. And he's like, oh, yeah, I should write about that. And he writes chapter 21. It sort of just has this like kind of add-on feel to it. But it's important to know it is John. The way it's talked about, the way that he presents this is from an eyewitness point of view. John himself telling you a story that he was a part of, but he just kind of tags it on to the end. And some of the looming questions are, why? He wrapped up the book so nicely in chapter 20. Why does he add this on? And one of the key components of why John adds this section on or completes the book with this section is redemption. It's a story of redemption. We got to see Peter, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter was called by Jesus, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. And Peter goes and he spends three years of his life walking with Jesus, camping with Jesus, ministering with Jesus. He's the one that climbed out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus and then started to sink when his faith started to waver. Peter has been a core character, a core component of the gospel of John and Matthew, Mark and Luke as well. Peter will go on to be a major uh, person in the book of Acts. He leads the church. He's he's a core component in Jerusalem. He'll write two letters, 1st and 2nd Peter, that are designed to go throughout Christendom. They're, They're actually designed to be sent to many churches where Paul usually targeted a single church. Peter was like, all right, here's a letter to all Christianity. 
A lot of people will look at the gospel of Mark and say that it's essentially Peter's gospel. That as Mark was writing, he was interviewing Peter and getting to know Peter's perspective and understanding how he saw the life and death of Jesus Christ. Peter is a significant person. And the last real thing that John told us about Peter is a story of failure. Peter's world was building up to being Jesus' right-hand man. If the kingdom of God had come like a lot of the disciples believed it was going to come in power and by the sword and to take over Rome and to reign in Jerusalem as this new Israel, if that was going to manifest, Jesus was going to be the king and Peter was going to be the vice king, I think is what they called it back then. I don't, I don't know. But Peter was the right-hand man. Even to the point in the garden where he pulls out his sword that nobody actually knew that Peter had. <laughs> and he cuts off the ear of one of the, the servants that had come to take Jesus away. And Jesus gently tells him to put it away. That's not what we're here for. That's not how this is going to go. So we're going to hear Peter's story of redemption. And I want you to hear this. Oftentimes we can go through the Bible and find a story that identifies with us. A story of uh, faith or a story of um, failure that we can kind of grab onto and say, okay, that, that actually feels like my life. That, that feels like something that I, I, can, I can hold on to. And Peter is that for many people, somebody that was following Jesus, walking with Jesus, and then fails in a big way. And what does Jesus do in response to the failure of Peter. So that's the section that we're in. This is going to be a long passage, John chapter 21. We'll read the whole thing. So if you have a Bible, open it up. If you don't, it'll either be on the screen behind me or we have physical Bibles in the aisle. You can grab one of those and follow along. It says this. After this, so we're sometime in the 40 days from Jesus' resurrection until he ascends into heaven, and we're at least eight days after the resurrection because that was the last time he appeared to the disciples and then probably a little bit more after that because they had to travel from Jerusalem up to the Sea of Galilee. So after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, wisely, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred uh, yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many that the net was not torn, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. 
Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who was bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. That is John chapter 21. Let's take a little bit of time and work through this and try and understand just a few of the things. Uh, The first thing we're going to talk about is Jesus and surprise. After the resurrection, Jesus uh, has a few different appearances to the disciples or to various disciples, and each time it comes with an element of Jesus not really belonging in that place. Uh, He appears twice in a locked room. Uh, the, The disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, two disciples walking, they're seven miles away from Jerusalem, and Jesus just appears on the day of his resurrection walking with them, unexpected. We find Jesus uh, showing up in strange places like this on the shore of the Sea of Galilee at daybreak. Now, a couple of things about this. These disciples had kind of gone back to the Sea of Galilee. They had all now, they had all seen that Jesus had risen from the dead. They're kind of in this now place of, okay, Jesus rose, now what? He had told them his great commission that as the Father has sent me, even so, I am sending you. We get that in John chapter 20. This incredible moment where Jesus empowers them with the Holy Spirit to go and forgive. Bring this message and ministry of reconciliation. It's so good and so important. But they're, they're in Jerusalem and they're like, all right, so what do we do? And they say, well, let's, let's go home. And they go home. And as best we can tell, John's telling us, they're kind of sitting around like, so what do we do? And Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. It's what he did for a living. It's what he knows how to do. As far as we can tell, when the disciples were in uh, the Sea of Galilee region, Tiberias region, they would often stay at uh, Peter's house or the house of his mother-in-law. Oh, he's back home. And he takes up his old task of fishing. They go out. They take the nets. They fish all night long. 
Like overnight, they're out there on the boat from dark overnight, and then it's daybreak the next morning. And then they get this guy on the shore. And the guy calls out to them. It says children, but the word, uh, it's kind of a colloquialism. It could be the equivalent of us saying, hey, guys. That's what Jesus is saying. I was reading one commentary from England that was like, like the Irish say boys. So I was like, okay, yeah. Hey, boys. That's what Jesus is saying. It's, it's, it's like sort of a term of endearment, but it's also very, very casual. Hey, guys, catch anything? And their answer was no. Now, I don't know if you've ever been doing something that you're good at, and uh, there's some rando person that's just like, hey, have you tried it this way? (laughs) If you've ever either been that person or been around that person, you should know they're just imitating Jesus. That's all they're doing (laughs) is practicing the way of Jesus by telling you, hey, have you tried it this way? Jesus does that. All night they've been fishing. Have you tried the other side of the boat? (laughs) Oh, dang it. So they throw the net on the other side, and they haul in just this immense haul. And at that point, there was was just this, like, something clicked in John. And just, again, anytime there's an unassigned disciple, anytime there's somebody that's, like, kind of anonymous, it's John. John's telling you from his perspective, he told Peter, it is the Lord. That's Jesus on the shore. Peter, after hearing John say this, sort of wraps his garment around him. They all kind of, you know, they take their cloak off, they're fishing all night, and he hears that it's the Lord, and he sort of like ties his coat around him and jumps in the water and starts swimming the 100-yard dash from the boat to the shore. And the rest of the disciples finish hauling the fish in and kind of row the boat ashore, and they all get there eventually. This is one of those unexpected places that Jesus shows up. And I think maybe the thing that I want to encourage you with, just this surprise element of Jesus is this. A lot of times in our lives, we expect Jesus to show up in the expected places. When we show up at church on a Sunday morning, there's maybe a little bit of an expectation that Jesus is going to minister to me today. Or if I wake up at at 6 or 5 or 4.30 or 4 in the morning and I crack open the scriptures and I have my coffee and I have my sunrise and I'm, I'm, I'm in this kind of quiet place, I'm expecting Jesus to meet with me here. And one of the things that I just, I love about Jesus is he loves to meet us in the unexpected places. He just loves to show up in our lives and bring things to remembrance and reveal himself to us or have somebody speak to us and we know that was from the Lord. There's nothing really to take away from this except to just encourage you and say, just know that that's part of how Jesus works. He's finding us in places that we didn't expect to find him and speaking to us, and ministering to us, and showing us his way. So it tells us a little bit about this interaction. Everybody gets to the shore, and there's a charcoal fire. Now this is, again, John does not waste words. John's telling us something with great intentionality, and the charcoal fire is the kind of thing that he's using as a picture to help us bring our minds back to something significant. Peter had had an interesting run. In John chapter 13, Peter said to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus flips it around and says, actually, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Peter saying, 
I'm yours, Lord. I'm all in. I will die for you. And Jesus saying, you're actually going to deny me even before daybreak. You're going to deny me three times. And here the disciples are at daybreak. Wow. Chapter 18, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter doing the thing that he thinks he should do, pulling out his sword and cutting off the guy's ear. I'm fighting for the Lord. I'm ready to die for him. And Jesus says, no, you're missing it yet again. These things are hours apart from each other. You're going to deny me. No, Peter, you're wrong. He's just not quite getting it. This has been a bad day so far for Peter. Chapter 18, Peter denies Jesus. Three times, two of them around a charcoal fire that was happening in the courtyard at Caiaphas' compound. That charcoal fire, John remembers it. Remember, John was the disciple that was able to let Peter into the courtyard. He was the one that had the relationship that opened the door for Peter to come into the courtyard. They go together to this charcoal fire, and John hears Peter deny Jesus three different times to the servant girl at the door, to the crowd twice around the fire. Three denials, and then the rooster crows, daybreak, indicating Jesus was right. I don't know what it would have been like to be Peter. You hear about the resurrection from Mary, and you start running, running as fast as you can to get to the tomb, you get there only to see it empty. And they leave, and Mary even gets to see Jesus. She even has this interaction with him. Peter hadn't even gotten to see the risen Christ yet. And then Peter, among the other disciples in that room, Jesus shows up, does not say anything specifically to Peter. Ministers to everybody, but not to Peter. Exclusively. Just says some things. To everybody. Peter's kind of, you can imagine, just like, okay, where are we at, Lord? Hey, can I just grab 30 seconds outside with you real quick? I just want to chat. just want to make sure we're cool. I don't know. What would have been going on in your mind? I just denied Jesus three times, and then we made eye contact. That was not a good last interaction. I'd like to make sure that the air is clear. Jesus ministers to the disciples and then goes. Eight days later, he shows up in that same locked room. I don't know, maybe Peter's heartbeat starts going a little faster, getting a little bit excited about the possibility. And he looks at Thomas. Thomas, come and feel my side. Touch my hands. See that I'm here. Again, nothing with Peter. Well, the way it looks that John's going to write this book is like he's wrapping up in chapter 20, and you could imagine somebody saying, well, What happened to Peter? He's like, oh, I should write about Peter. I mean, that's kind of the feeling that it gets is like, we've got to wrap this story up. There's an ending to Peter's story that people need to hear. So John tells this story masterfully. There's a a New Testament theologian named N.T. Wright, and he writes about this scene. He says, this scene between Jesus and Peter is one of the most spectacular interchanges in the whole Bible, perhaps in all literature. The most remarkable thing about it is that by way of forgiveness, Jesus gives Peter a job to do. When Peter professes his love, Jesus doesn't say, well, that's all right then. He says, well then, feed my lambs, look after my sheep, feed my sheep. 
Peter had denied Jesus three times and was at that moment living with that denial. That was his new identity as the one who made big claims and fell far short. And I think that right there is probably where a lot of us have experienced life like Peter, making big claims but falling far short. I've been in this Christian thing for a long time. My dad planted a church three days before I was born, so I I grew up in the church. I loved it. I, I, I didn't really run away from the church. I embraced it fully. I was an Awana champion, for those of you that know what Awana is, lots of sparky bucks. Ran in the Olympics, did a great job. Not, not the real Olympics, the Awana Olympics, it's different. I was a youth group kid. I loved youth group, student leadership. I loved it. Got a chance to preach to my peers when I was in high school. I enjoyed that. I led worship in Mexico on mission trips. I loved that. I grew up in this story. And I kind of had this experience going through my life, and maybe yours tracks a little bit, where there was a huge desire to give God my whole life all the time and then girls. (laughs) I wanted God to have my whole life, genuinely, everything in me wanted God to have all of me all the time and then baseball and friends and almost everything else except for pursuing Jesus. And I would have these crazy moments where I would, I would show up at Forest Home. It's like a, a conference center away from home and all of the distractions and all of the things would melt away. And I would have this powerful moment where I could see Jesus more clearly than I had ever seen him. And all of a sudden I wanted it all again. Jesus, you are my everything. All I want is to follow you. And then two weeks later, I'd be snowboarding in Mammoth, and I'd just think, man, this is what I want to do with my life. (laughs) I don't know if you've had these experiences where there's these big offerings to God, these big claims, these big moments of devotion, these big things where you just say, I will die for you. And then we just deny, deny, deny that Jesus is Lord. Peter's story is a story of redeeming a, one, a person that follows Jesus. Jesus doesn't question Peter's devotion to him ever. That's not the point. But the point is that devotion only goes so far. This idea of being cognitively devoted or even emotionally devoted. There's something else to being a follower of Jesus, and that's what Jesus is trying to help Peter understand. There's another step. This isn't just about your big claims. This is now about you shaping your life in a different way. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Oh, it stings to be asked three times if I love you in one conversation. Yes, you know everything. 
You are God. That's what Peter is saying to Jesus in that moment. You know everything. You know everything I've ever thought, everything I've ever felt. You know all that is in me. You know I love you. And again, Jesus is just trying to help Peter connect. This isn't just about your feels. There's something to be done. There's motion that comes out of those feelings that's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that's part of our redemptive story. One thing you learn if you're married for any length of time is that words only go so far. You could get into some difficult situations in a marriage relationship, some tender moments. And again, as a husband, I have made some bold claims to my wife. I will never lie to you again. I will never forget to take the trash out again. I will never. I mean, it's a, whatever it is, they can be big, small, it doesn't matter. As husbands, and maybe it's wives too, I don't know, but this is, seems to be always me because I'm a big words guy. I love to make the big claim. It's just what's, it feels like it's going to resolve the tension of the moment. I will always do this thing or never do this thing. And it I'm like, dude, I'm, I just sold her on every, like, this is it. But for Kristen, there's just this sense in her of like, okay, uh, thank you, but just do it. She's very pragmatic. <laughs> there's something in Jesus that's saying, Peter, what I want from that love is for it to produce a life. And for those of us as followers of Jesus, there's something to hear here. That love that we have for Jesus that comes out in worship, that comes out maybe when we think about God, when we think about our own redemptive story, the, the love that comes out is supposed to produce what? And that's what we're going to talk about for the rest of our time. And this is the pastoral commission. So there's a, a great commission. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's to go outside of the church, outside of those that follow Jesus. Tell them about Jesus. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey all that he's commanded. There's a, a call to go to the nations, and it's a beautiful and important call to the church. All of us all the time should understand that there's a call on our lives to take the name of Jesus out of this place and to speak Jesus' name in foreign places foreign in terms of nationalities, foreign in terms of languages, foreign in terms of cultures, foreign in terms of not a part of the body. Speak the name of Jesus. That's a great commission. The pastoral commission is different. Now, this is a place where exegetically we have to kind of decide something. Was Jesus talking to Peter or was he talking to us? We had to deal with this earlier in John 20. When Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you, we had to kind of wrestle with, was that to all of us or was that just to those guys in the room? And here to Peter, we sort of have to, to kind of land on this idea. And, and to be honest, the, the Catholic Church has landed on this being to Peter. It's where the idea of the Pope comes from, is the ministry of Jesus to Peter as the first Pope. And then there's papal succession, where the authority that Jesus gave to Peter specifically is passed on from Pope to Pope to Pope to Pope and on down the line. And so there's a, an authority that goes with the words that Jesus spoke to Peter specifically. That's one option. There's another option. And that's to believe that in 
Peter's redemptive story, Jesus was speaking words that were actually given to the church. The church meaning the body of Christ. When we say the church, we don't think of some holy entity that is a business or a corporation or a nonprofit or or anything like that. That's not what we mean when we say the church. When we talk about the church, we're not talking about the church organizationally. We are talking about the church as the ecclesia, the body of Christ, the people of God, the ones who are saints. That's you and me, both. We don't actually hold to a clergy-laity divide where the Uh, The pastor who carries the title has some kind of higher position or role than the rest of the church. You might have noticed last week, if you were here for the baptism, that Walt Birch baptized his daughter, not me. That's an important thing for us to do as a church, to understand that it's not not my job to, uh, to bless you. I don't dispense communion to you. It's not the job of the elders to do all the rites and rituals of, uh, of the church. We actually, we, we don't hold to that. The Bible calls you saints and it calls me a saint. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have the same authority that Jesus gave. Now there's different gifting, there's different roles, there's absolutely different roles in the church. The church is given structure, we hold to that, but I want you to understand that theologically, I don't hold a different authority than you do. Now I'm more accountable, because according to James, as a teacher, I'm held to a higher standard because the stuff that comes out of my mouth could deceive you. If I were to lead you astray, I would receive a higher degree of accountability for my sin than somebody that's not a teacher. That's, that's maybe the difference, is greater responsibility for the words that come out of my mouth because I stand up here and I speak and I could, I could take you away. Why am I spending so much time on this? Because I believe that, P, that Jesus' words to Peter are part of how the body of Christ is shaped. Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Who are Jesus' sheep? The flock, the sheep, the lambs, the idea of that analogy is every follower of Jesus that lives from that point on. It's part of this flock of God. Now, what we get from the New Testament is two components. One is, yes, there is eldership. There's a group of people that are given with the task of of overseeing the church, shepherding the church, instructing the church, kind of helping to keep the church moving doctrinally towards uh, the the sound way of Jesus. We do see that. And elders are given instruction to shepherd the flock that's entrusted to them. But then we also see instruction to parents to raise up their children. And you could read into that to shepherd their children in the way of Jesus. We see instruction to husbands and wives to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, that there's a mutual shepherding of one another towards Jesus in the scriptures, that a wife's responsibility is to shepherd her husband towards Jesus, and a husband's responsibility is to shepherd his wife towards Jesus. And we see in the scriptures a call to the body of Christ to stir one another to love and good works, to move each other towards greater Christ-likeness. And all of those things fall under this category of shepherding. 
Actually bringing people into this run towards Jesus, helping them find the way of God. There's the Great Commission that sends us out, and there's the Pastoral Commission that talks about how we are to relate to one another as the church. And part of our responsibility as a church is to be always helping each other become more and more like Jesus. 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, and 1 Peter 4, all of those passages talk about spiritual gifts and how the body builds one another up. Okay, so each of those chapters is devoted to the idea of the body building up the body. Acts 20, 1 Peter 5, 1 Timothy, we see instruction to the elders specifically to bring in some shepherding components. So we do see the role in elders. We also see the role in the church. What I'm hoping you'll take away from this is, again, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're not here simply to attend. There's a task that's given to you. Do you love Jesus? It's a pretty core question. For some of us, it's like, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't know if I I would say I love him. For others of us, we might say, well, I love Jesus, but I don't know that I believe everything that's said about him. We, We kind of find ourselves in this strange place. John's writing so that you'll believe in Jesus, but Jesus called Peter, do you love me? Jesus said, then tend my sheep, feed my lambs. One thing we'll notice, and we'll see this in the book of Romans, is that as Followers of Jesus, it's not um, all systems go running towards Christ-likeness for the rest of our life from the moment we make the decision to follow Jesus. This is why a bit of the story that I shared about my own life, I kind of found myself struggling to find focus and run towards Jesus. And the need of the body of Christ is help. We need help to be pointed towards Jesus. Some people use the word accountability to talk about this. Like, I just need somebody to hold me accountable, to help me steer towards Jesus. For others, it's a more broader sense of community where I'm not meant to do this on my own. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I actually could use some other people to help steer me towards Jesus. For some people, it's the picture. I need somebody that I can imitate. If I just said like an older follower of Jesus that was walking faithfully and I could, I could pattern my life after them and I could kind of do the Timothy thing where I fall in line with Paul and I can just say, okay, this is my track. I see what Paul's doing and I'm gonna, I'm gonna imitate him. I'm gonna follow in that line. But all of that is designed for us to grow towards Christ-likeness and none of it is done absent from other people. The pastoral commission to Peter, I believe, is a posture call to believers. We're to be shepherds and sheep. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the same Peter that we've just been talking about. This is Peter chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse, verses 1 through 4. Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So he's got two roles here. He's essentially saying, look, I'm an apostle, I'm an elder, I'm with you, I'm a peer. 
as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. I'm also, like you, somebody that hopes in this future glory. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Okay, there's a couple of things from this passage. Number one, this is from an elder to elders, Peter instructing elders how to shepherd the church. And there's great instruction in there for how elders should function. But there's that shepherding word. So this is Peter taking what Jesus said to him and not giving it to the next pope, but giving it to leaders of every church everywhere. He's saying what Jesus said to him to everybody that's in leadership in a church. But then he says this. He says, when the chief shepherd appears. See, Peter identifies as an apostle. He identifies as an elder. He identifies as a redeemed son of God, somebody that's been saved by Jesus. And he identifies as a sheep. That's part of our existence. Because I am on eldership here at the church, that doesn't mean that I'm also not a fellow sheep with you being shepherded by Jesus and by you. It's a weird thing to think about, the mutuality of the body of Christ. I'm actually dependent on you as you are dependent on me for our spiritual maturing in Christ. When I, when I meet with people in the church, I'm not going to, again, function in this clergy role of blessing a person, but I am receiving, similarly, encouragement and shaping and stirring to walk closer with Jesus. You are shaping me and I'm shaping you. Because while I do have a role as an elder of this church and I am responsible for shepherding the flock that's been entrusted to me uh, along with my other elder team companions, we're also sheep. I need encouragement. I need to be stirred. I'm not Jesus 2.0 in the flesh. I have a lot of growing and shaping left in my life. And if I were to reject other voices to help shape that in me, you all should run away from me because I am actually on a bad path, not a good path. And the same would be true of you. It does not matter how old you are. doesn't matter how long you've been walking with Jesus. Jesus was well aware that every single one of us needs the stirring and shaping and molding for the rest of our lives. We need it. We need each other. We need to be pastored and shepherded. That's an important part of the story of what it means to be the body of Christ. I had a pretty humbling moment as a uh, as a young man to a dad. My dad's 72 years old. He's been walking with Jesus for a long, long time. He is the source of wisdom in my life. I go to him with just about everything I can think of. He is a mentor to me, and he came to me a few years ago, and he said, hey, uh, I just want to thank you for pastoring me, for helping me become more like Jesus. That was a, that was a weird thing for me to step into that role. 
But it was also a moment to realize that that's the reality of the life of God. My dad's not there saying, I'm done being shepherded. My dad's a man, 72 years old, following Jesus most of his life that says, I'm still being shepherded to, to become more like Jesus. So the pastoral commission. And I'll say a couple of things about this. First of all, uh, if you feel like you have failed and for whatever reason you are disqualified in the body of Christ, you need to understand that Jesus is in the business of redemption. He loves to redeem our stories and use them for his purposes. That's what he does. It's what Jesus does. He takes the stories of people who have fallen short, legitimately fallen short, and he redeems them, and he stirs them, and he calls them, and he compels them, and he gifts them, and he empowers them, and he uses them for his glory. So the call is don't disqualify yourself. That's the first thing. Don't count yourself out because of decisions that you've made or things that you've done. Jesus is a redeemer. It's what he does. Second thing is to take on the posture of a sheep. Now, somewhere along the line, sheep became kind of an insult in our culture. Like, ah, oh, you're just a bunch of sheep. Everybody's just following, following, following. As a Christian, we should bear that insult as a badge of honor. I'm a sheep following my shepherd. It's who I am and it's what I do. Without my chief shepherd, Jesus, without his under-shepherds, my church, my fellow companions in Christ, I am wandering into the wilderness because that's what sheep do. We need leadership. We need Jesus and his church to help us walk in righteousness. So adopting the posture of a sheep is to actually step into that and own that identity and to say, okay, here's the reality. I need help. I'm not built to do this on my own. If you're married, I need a spouse to help move me towards Jesus. Now, here's the thing. In a marriage relationship, it can oftentimes be hard to sit our spouse down and say, hey, let me tell you how you can become more like Jesus. Because usually there's a little bit more tension and ambiguity in that. Like, it can just be a difficult place. So, spouse, sit down and tell your spouse, I need help becoming more like Jesus. What do you see in me that can be refined? Give your spouse permission to speak into your life rather than taking permission and speaking into your spouse's life. It doesn't mean you may never have to call something out in your spouse, but I'm just saying, if we're talking day-to-day, week-to-week, life-on-life relationship, as a husband and wife, invite somebody to shape you to be more like Jesus. In your friend group, again, it can be hard to go to somebody and just say, you know what, you need this to become more like Jesus. It's a great place to start with the stuff that's in our own life. Hey, what, what do you see in me? How, can I, how could I be more like Jesus? If I'm, if I'm wanting you to stir me up to love and good works, where could you see me being more loving? What, what, what could you see in my life that might actually be more Jesus-like if I were to do it differently? That would be taking the posture of a sheep, inviting people to help shape you to be more like Jesus. It's a humbling thing to do. But the Bible has some things to say about humility, doesn't it? So in humility, invite people to help you become more like Jesus. 
Third thing, take the posture of a shepherd. Do you love Jesus? And take on the responsibility of shepherding the lambs of God, the sheep of God. This is an encouragement to you to um, take on greater roles in the church and in your family as somebody that leads other people to be more like Jesus. Right now we're in a culture where a lot of people are shrinking back from leadership. Just culturally, anecdotally, people are starting to do studies. Leadership as a concept is on the decline. Nobody wants to get canceled. Nobody wants to, nobody wants to step out and put themselves out there for other people to crush and destroy. That is not fun. But the church actually needs people to step into the role that God has for them. To raise their hand and say, yeah, here am I. I'll go. I'll teach. I'll lead. I'll minister. I'll encourage. I'll build up. I'll serve. I'll worship. I'll give. I'll, I'll help people become more like Jesus. Take the posture of a shepherd. That's not, by the way, if you're like, well, I don't know if women can be pastors. I don't know, you know. This isn't gender specific that we're talking about. It's so far from the point. I will tell you this. Whatever you believe about women and ministry, every woman can have the gift of pastoral ministry. Like You can function as a shepherd, woman of God. You don't need to enter into that debate of can a woman be a pastor. That title is a, is a different thing than what we're talking about today. We are talking about the heart of a shepherd, the heart of shaping somebody to become more like Jesus. Yes, woman, you can step into that and should. This is not about title or position or anything like that. This is about the gifting that God has empowered you with, and you have it. And the call is to use it. Shape and build up and stir people to be like Jesus. Go. The last thing that John points out is a little thing about Peter and John. They've been competitive their whole lives, as far as we can tell. And Peter is walking with Jesus, and he turns around and he says, what about that guy? It's like trying to deflect the heat a little bit. Peter, do you love me? Could you ask John some questions for just a minute? And Jesus basically says to Peter, what difference does it make what I say to him? This is what I'm asking you to do. And I'll just say that to each of you as well. We don't step into this like, well, I don't know. What about, what about them? This is a moment for you to stand before Jesus and receive what he has for you and not to be concerned with what other people are doing. This is a, a moment for you to say yes to what Jesus is saying to you. And that's the point of what John is saying. Peter and John's stories were different. And Jesus called each of them uniquely to a different task. And Jesus separated those tasks and separated those people and said, I speak to the person that I speak to and I call them and I engage them and I use them. Let me minister to you and you minister to people. My hope from this message was honestly that 
We would get a lot of people in here that would realize the redemption that you have in Christ and step into greater pastoral ministry. Shepherding people to become more like Jesus in your community group, in your family, in your church, wherever you're at, to take on more responsibility of leading people to become more like Jesus. That was the hope of this message. I hope you walk away with that, just rumbling through your head, what might it look like for me to shepherd people well? Jesus, thank you for this amazing group of people. I look out and I see faces that I love. Thank you for such a gift as this church to walk with, to enjoy. Lord, we get to embrace each other on a a weekly basis, sometimes more frequently than that. Loving this body together through the kingdom, it's just a joy. What a gift, Lord. I pray that as response to the gift of your body, Lord, that we would actually be willing to step in and both be sheep to be shepherded and encouraged and stirred and also to be shepherds, to be stirrers and encouragers and shapers and teachers to help move each other towards you. Or we need it, we want it. I pray that you would put it to work in this church family. It's in your name we pray, amen.